I want to tell you about somebody who I'm always claiming is my ancestor. I actually don't have any evidence of that, but here's uh, William Tyndale, who William Tyndall here was named after. Here's a picture. Uh, William Tyndale was an, an, an English... Not, sorry, not of him. That, that could be your future. William Tyndale was a, an English scholar and a linguist who was born at the end of the 15th century. He became convinced that the Bible ought to be translated into the language of the common people so that they could read it for themselves. And this was a radical idea. The establishment didn't like it. They perceived it as a threat to their power base. So at roughly the age of 30, he took a boat down the Thames to take a ship to Hamburg, where there was more freedom in uh, Protestant Germany, not knowing that he would spend the rest of his short life in exile. On the run, constantly in hiding from spies, he translated the New Testament and many parts of the Old Testament into the language of the people. It is simple and beautiful to read. It's actually the language that inspired Shakespeare. It was also a threat to the status quo. And copies of Tyndale's New Testament were seized. They were smuggled in, but they were seized and burned in front of St. Paul's Cathedral. How ironic. In 1535, he was captured by spies through a trap and imprisoned for about a year. And a year later, he was strangled and his body burned at the stake. Although the strangling didn't kill him, so he revived and was burned alive. What was happening? Where was God? Is God in control? Now ultimately the tables were turned. As he was dying, Tyndale is reported to have said, Lord, open the king of England's eyes. And later the king's eyes were opened. Some decades later, Tyndale's work survived. And about 83% of it became the New Testament of the King James Version. Here's an uh, uh, etching of the, uh, his death and his words. Open the King of England's eyes. God was in control. He turned the tables from an apparent failure and death came amazing life. Because that book, the English Bible, changed the world. Now today we're in a pivotal moment in the book of Esther because we're reading this story about Jewish people living in a minority, living in the margins, in the Persian Empire of the 5th century BC, at a place where anti-Semitism was just around the corner, and an unjust law was passed, a law of ethnic cleansing, that on a certain day, the enemies of the Jews would have power and the right to take up arms and destroy them, men, women and children. And everything at this point in the story seems to hang by a thread, as we thought last week. At the end of chapter 4, Mordecai, who was a Jewish man working at the king's gate, comes and pleads with his adopted daughter, Esther. And he says, you've got to do something. You've got to go to the king and try and speak up for us. And she says, I can't, you can't just go in there, you know. If you're not invited, the king can have you killed on the spot. And Mordecai says, well, you know, maybe you're there for such a time as this. Maybe God has put you there for that. And so she says, all right. Fast for three days, get all the Jews to stop eating food and focus, and probably pray, reading between the lines, and I will go. So she fasts as well. And we take up the story in chapters 5 and 6, and I've got one point today that I'm going to say about nine times. The point is, God is in control. God is in control. First of all, God is in control of the hearts of kings. Archaeologists who dug up 
the ancient world in the Middle East, have uncovered sculptures and stone carvings of the Persian kings. Some of them quite beautiful, well preserved. And one of them depicts a king holding out a scepter. Looks just like this clicker. (laughs) And behind him is a servant, big guy, holding a large axe. It's a, a graphic image, really, of the reality of this chapter. If you go to the king and you're not invited and he doesn't hold out the scepter, you could be killed on the spot. That's the kind of absolute power that these guys held. It was the law that the king had absolute power of life and death. And we've seen so far in the book that this king, who's sometimes known as Xerxes or Ahasuerus or Ahasuerus or however you pronounce it, he has a pretty poor track record. He's unpredictable, fickle, and he has a raging temper. I wouldn't fancy my chances of just walking in there. Hi, do you want a coffee? (laughs) Now Esther, at this moment in the story, has got a bit of an uncertain status. She's not sure how she stands. Even though she's queen, she hasn't been called in to see the king for 30 days. Now this king doesn't sleep alone. He's got a harem of scores of women. He's obviously uh, enjoying somebody else. So is Esther out of favour at this point? Is she ever going to see him again? She doesn't really know. So she has to screw up her courage to the sticking point and go and see him. And everything in the story, everything in the future of the Jewish people depends on this woman going to see this king. She puts on her royal clothing to remind him of who she is and she steps out in courage. And he sees her and as it says, he immediately, chapter 5, welcomes her in. Uh, He saw her standing in the court and she won favour in his sight, grace. And he held out the golden scepter and she goes and touches it. So then he makes this offer, which sounds like the offer you can't refuse, doesn't it? What do you want? Up to half my kingdom. So I would have said, well, okay, how about 49% of your kingdom? <laughs> well, actually, it's just a way of saying, look, I'm pleased to see you. I'll make you a, you know, a generous offer. So God is in control. Proverbs 21 says, the king's heart is a stream of water. In the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. God is in control of the hearts of kings. God is in control of the schemes of power. The second big character in this chapter, these two chapters, is a man called Haman, who's the number two. He's kind of the CEO over the Persian Empire. He's extraordinarily powerful and rich. Earlier in the book, he promised the king 10,000 talents of silver, which is literally tons of silver, as a contribution to the treasury if he would, the king would let him kill all the Jews. He's extraordinarily powerful, influential and rich. Yet it all means nothing to him if this one Jewish guy, Mordecai, won't bow and pay him deference. And he goes out from the, from the, the banquet in high spirits and then he sees that guy sitting there at his desk. How dare he's not even looking at me. And he won't get at everybody else's bowing and scraping. And Mordecai... Is there acting as if he's just sharpening his pencil or something. Now, why is Haman like this? Pride. Pride makes for a very fragile ego. Although on the outside he looks strong, his inner core, his character, is weak. He demands respect and honour from other people. If he doesn't get it, he boils with rage. Everything he has is worthless to him if he hasn't got respect from everyone. So his day is ruined when he sees Mordecai refusing to kowtow. He goes home in a strop, 
we talk about a jug lip in our family when a kid does this. He goes home with his jug lip and he tells his wife and friends, he gathers them all around, he says, you know me, I've got loads of sons. I'm sort of a big deal. I've got all this money. I got invited to the banquet. No one else did. I'm on the A-list. He says, but you know what? None of it means anything to me as long as that Jew is still alive. And his wife and his advisors say, there, there, little bunny. Just ask the king and he can have it executed in the morning. And go out for breakfast. He says, that's a good plan. And he sets to work and he builds this completely over-the-top gallows. It's about 75 or 80 feet high. Now, Mordecai isn't a giant, you know. It's going to be strong. It's going to be quite high up. What's the point? It's, it's, it, that, that gallows is a, is a monument to Haman's ego. He has to have it big. And the point is not just to kill someone. The point is public disgrace. So everyone can see that's what happens to people who don't bow down to me. Public disgrace. But God is in control. And when Haman arrives at court, he arrives at just the moment when the king has learned about the king's own failure to reward the loyal servant, Mordecai. So the king calls Haman in. He says, oh, yeah, bring him in here. Listen, what should be done to honour the man that the king delights in? And Haman, because it's all about him, immediately assumes that the king must be talking about him. So he goes into this fantasy world about what he would really like for Christmas. And he says, well, you could dress him in a robe that the king has worn. And then put him on a horse that's one of the king's own horses that he's ridden. With a crown on it. Give the horse a crown. And then lead it through the city. But get one of the top princes to do it. And as he's leading it through, he's shouting out, Make way, make way. This is what happens to the man the king delights to honour. And he's got this image. It's all going to happen for him. And the king says, great idea. You do that now for Mordecai. Go, fast. And he says, Mordecai! He has to do it. He's got no choice. It's utterly humiliated. Complete turnaround. And he goes home to lick his wounds and hang his head in shame. And his wife hears the full story. And she says, as only a wife can, sorry, you are doomed. <laughs> because if that Mordecai is a Jew and you just set that thing in motion to kill them all, you really, your career is over, buddy. Husband or not. God is in control uh, and the hearts of kings are the schemes of power. God is in control of the tiny details. The pivot of this entire story is in chapter 6, verse 1. Here's a memory verse. We should teach this to the children. On that night, the king could not sleep. There's a memory verse for the book of Esther. On that night, the king could not sleep. And so he gives orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they are read before the king. I guess that book was so boring that it was the one you would ask for if you couldn't sleep, you know, it's kind of a soporific. So he's there with his uh, chamomile tea, and, uh, you know, he's on his, lolling on his silk sheets, trying to get off to sleep. Shouldn't have eaten so much curry at Esther's place. <laughs> and he goes, oh, what do you mean? Somebody saved my life. Huh, Mordecai. Hang on a minute. Did we ever reward him? And they look him in the book. You can imagine his courtiers. Your Majesty, we, we didn't do anything for him. Now this is serious. Because these kings lived in an atmosphere where someone would try to assassinate them. In fact, the real Xerxes, in the, the, uh, 
history we get outside the Bible tells that he was eventually killed in his bedroom by two uh, of his former military officials. So they know that uh, they need to reward people. If somebody saves their life, they need to make it plain that that's good news for everyone. And he's, he's missed the plot on that one. So he says, right, we've got to, we've got to make, it, make up for it. Now just think for a moment about the series of apparently unconnected coincidences that lead us up to this point in the story. For some reason, Mordecai uncovered a plot for the king's life, an assassination plot. But for some reason, he was never rewarded. For some reason, the king could not sleep that night. For some reason, the guys who brought the chronicle in turn to the page and read about Mordecai. For some reason, at the moment that the king wants to think about rewarding him, Haman arrives in the court, the early bird trying to catch the worm, and he gets caught. It's a series of fairly ordinary events, aren't they? Plausible events. But linked together, you see an amazing chain of causality that leads to the rescue of the Jewish people. Now, how on earth does that happen? Those kind of tiny details get lined up. Now, this author never uses the word God or Lord. And a lot of the early Bible translators of of the hundreds and thousands of years ago were a bit uncomfortable with that. They felt it should have a bit more God in it. So they actually added a bit to chapter 6, verse 1. So their translation, for example, the first Greek translation, was something like this. On that night, God caused the king not to sleep. We just kind of put it in. But our author is much more subtle than that. He doesn't say that God was there. He just leaves his work it out. On that night, the king could not sleep. And he writes like this because this is how we experience God's work in real life, don't we? Subtle, hidden, usually non-miraculous in the everyday workaday world. But when you stand back, at some distance, and maybe sometimes in the distance of time, and you look at the pattern of events that have happened in your life, you realise the wonderful things that God has been doing through the everyday. Just think about your own life for a moment. How did you come to be here? Katie, how did you come to be an undergraduate in Manchester and end up on Manchester International Outreach? Those of you who are employed, how did you get your job? Those of you who are married, how did you meet your spouse? I have to say, my uh, meeting Melissa as I did was, was miraculous. Those of you who are Christians, how did you come to encounter Jesus Christ? What chain of events led you to hearing the good news? God is in control. The hearts of kings, the schemes of power, and the tiny details. And my second point is, God is in control. To restrain evil. Now I'm aware that for some people in our culture... Even the word control has got negative vibes. Maybe you feel like that today. You think, oh, I don't like the sound of this. God is in control. Sounds like a totalitarian state or a dictator or faceless corporate power. Control. We need to ask, if God has that kind of power, absolute power over this world, how does he use it? And the first thing we observe in this section is that God uses his power to restrain evil. God uses his power to influence events so that evil is restrained. Now, people often complain, where's God if there is one? Where is God when that earthquake happened or the tsunami hit? 
or that serial killer was getting away with it. But we overlook the fact that God is constantly at work in the world restraining evil. The world could be a much, much worse place than it is. Three years ago, my family and I were on holiday in the Lake District. And we were standing at a model a railway, uh, a miniature steam railway station. And we got inadvertently swept up into something called the Cumbria Shootings. A local taxi driver, 52-year-old man called Derek Bird, who is described as a popular and quiet man, had lived a fairly ordinary life. He owned a gun, and one day, he just flipped out and started driving from village to village and town to town, shooting random people. Now, Derek Bird, by the time he was caught, had killed 12 people, and 11 others were injured, but he took his own life. Uh, before being uh, taken to justice. What, what gives? Now we look at that and we think, isn't that odd? Isn't that strange? How is it that that could happen? Why would someone do that? We don't realise the evil of our own hearts. It's more surprising that there aren't more Derek Birds. We should be surprised that that kind of thing doesn't happen more often. People are not innately good. And loving and kind. They're innately self-centred and wicked. The only reason that we're, the world is not full of monsters is that God is constantly at work restraining evil, using his power to influence. Now, God works through law and order. God works through so-called common decency. God works through ordinary hero- heroism. He works through the restraints of family, parents, society. God works through conscience, which he's given to human beings. As damaged as conscience is, we still have one. These things are not givens. They're gifts. God is stopping the world from being as bad as it could be. And he does this for everyone. Everywhere. Regardless of who they are, or how they treat him, or if they even acknowledge his existence. It's called common grace. It goes to everyone. But there's a special grace as well. Because God uses his power, his control, to keep his promises. The story of the Bible, the big storyline, is that at the beginning the world was beautiful and good and ordered, healthy and whole, a place of peace and prosperity. And that in chapter 3 of the Bible, the wheels fell off. It's an event we call the fall. It's really an exile away from God's presence. It's really a decreation that undoes all the good that God had done. Chapter 12, God winds the winds the thing back and makes an amazing promise to a guy and his wife. He says, you know, I'm going to bless the whole world through you. That man's name was Abraham. And the rest of the Bible is a story of how God keeps that promise to Abraham through thick and thin, through ups and downs. Even when God's people disobey him and spurn him and scorn him and cheat on him. Even when God has to fulfill his, his threat that he would send them into exile, he still promises that he won't let them die out, that one day a king will come who will reign forever in David's line. And that king will will put to to the end, will will right all wrongs and put all evil to the end. Now, that king, as we know, in the end is Jesus Christ. And he brings about a whole new state of affairs called the New Covenant. He gives us even better promises. Jesus says, I will send my spirit to be with you. When we were singing earlier on, If you felt something stirring in your heart and mind, you felt yourself being awakened 
to the presence of God. You felt yourself being made alive and feeling sorry for the things you've done this week. That's the Holy Spirit at work in you. Here. We prayed upstairs before we came down. Lord, send your spirit to this meeting. Jesus says, I'll send the spirit to be with you so I will be with you always to the very end of the age. And he promises that he will bring people from all nations, Katie and team. Jesus Christ has promised that around his throne will be people from every single people group. Some of these people this week could be included in that. And then he will bring in a new creation, a home of righteousness, a place of peace and prosperity. Now that's the big canvas. And our lives are just a tiny little pixel on that huge canvas of what God is doing in history. God uses his power to keep his promises. And you know, he does so even when it doesn't look like it. And that's the big takeaway from this book of Esther. God is hidden in this book. Events seem to be going all the wrong way against the Jews. But even when God is silent, he is not absent. And the book of Esther is this great story written to remind us of that reality when we face problems and paradoxes in our lives. God is in control to restrain evil, to keep his promise to his people, even when it doesn't look like it. But some of you are thinking, all right, hang on a minute. Objection. Some of us are objecting to this. Because we're thinking, I can't make sense of X. Are you thinking this? You're saying that God's in control and God is in power. But I can't make sense of this thing. Maybe something that happened to you. Or I can't make of this thing, something that happened, you've read in the news that really upset you. Or, or, or you know, whatever it is. I can't make sense of it. That God would be in control and this thing would happen. Well, we need humility. Just because you and I don't understand something doesn't mean that it couldn't possibly be true. We need humility when we're approaching the big questions like this. Because the Bible says, at the end of the day, this is the way it works. God is in control. He doesn't always do things the way we think they should work. One of the greatest minds who's ever lived is a man we know as the Apostle Paul. One of the greatest thinkers in world history. Paul was a Jew, and he'd spent his whole life as a faithful, law-abiding Jew. And then he heard about Jesus. And first of all, he hated Jesus. And he started persecuting Christians, trying to have them locked up and killed. When one of the first martyred, Christian was martyred, throwing stones at him, Stephen, Paul was there guarding the cloaks. Go for it, guys. And then the risen Lord Jesus met Paul and stopped him in his tracks and changed him. He became the greatest missionary the church has ever known. Now, in his longest letter, the book of Romans, Paul turns to the question of his own people, the Jews, the people he loves. And he says, what are we going to say about them now, Israel, who have rejected Jesus? What place is there for the Jews? It's knotty. It's difficult. And he wrestles with it for three chapters with his immense brain. And it's not straightforward. It's brilliant stuff. At the end of it, do you know what he does? He turns to thinking about God and he turns to praise. He says, I can't make sense of it all. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counsellor? 
Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. See, Paul, when he's wrestled with difficult problems, eventually says, praise God. He's he's higher than me. He's beyond me. How unsearchable and inscrutable he is. But how good he is. Somebody else is thinking, hang on a minute. You're saying God is in control. That means God is in control of evil. Yes, we have to conclude that God is ultimately in control of whether or not evil happens. But that does not make him the direct cause of evil. If you want to hear a really good study of this, there's one on our website. John Chapman spoke uh, on a Monday night last year on the problem of evil. Brilliant, brilliant stuff. A suicide bomber who blows up innocent civilians is, is acting against God's law, but he has freedom, permission to do it. God permits things that he does not command. And as I've already said, this world could be much, much worse than it is. God's control is exercised in restraining evil all the time. And the Bible teaches that over the long haul, over the big trajectory, God is working for good and justice and put things to rights. So how does evil fit in? Well, at some level, it's a mystery. It's a mystery. His ways are not our ways. How unsearchable and inscrutable he is. But we do know that the essence of God's character is that he is good. He's good. He's faithful. Steadfast. Full of loving kindness. Slow to anger and abounding in mercy. He's patient. Somehow... God is in control and he allows evil to happen. Third objection, final objection. If God is in control, it would be like living in North Korea. Apologies to any North Koreans here. Uh, You've heard this quote before, some of you, from uh, the writer Christopher Hitchens. He said, I think it would be rather awful if it was true that there was a God like that. If there was a permanent, total, round-the-clock divine supervision and invigilation of everything you did. You never have a waking or sleeping moment. You weren't being watched and controlled and supervised by some celestial entity from the moment of your conception to the moment of your death. It would be like living in North Korea. Well, that all depends on what God is like, doesn't it? Esther, the book of Esther, shows that God has a very light touch. He uses his power with great care and subtlety. He allows humankind a great deal of freedom to live in his world. We also know from studying the whole Bible that God's nature is not that he is an angry loner, just brooding up in the sky and wanting to beat people up when they disobey him. God's nature, his essence, is Trinity. He is three persons in one Godhead. It's something that's very hard to wrap your mind around, and I know our Muslim friends find this One of the biggest objections to the Christian faith. How could this be true? The essence of God's nature is that he is three in one. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. They've always existed, all three of them. They've always been happy. They've always loved each other. They've lived a life of joy together for all eternity. And they made the world to share that. Jesus Christ came to this world as a human, but he was a pre-existent being. When he was baptised in the water, the heavens, the clouds split and there was a voice heard. This is my beloved son, with him I am well pleased. And the Holy Spirit came down looking like a dove and settled on Jesus. That's a picture of the life of God. 
It's dynamic, it's moving, it's speaking, it's affirming, it's loving. All three together in a perfect dance and unity for all of history. That's the nature of the God who is in control. So it's not really like North Korea. God is in control of ordinary events. He's in control to turn death to life. The Jews' death was rescued, they were turned to life. And he's in control. He clothes his people with the king's robe. There's a wonderful episode where Haman, having dreamt the fantasy uh, league, fantasy football scenario of having the robe and going on the horse and the crown, has to bestow it on one of God's people, the Jew Mordecai. And Mordecai is pulled out of his office during his tea break. They want you up at the palace, you know. You need to get on this horse, put on this robe. The king wore it. He's like, what? Yeah. What is going on there? You wear the king's robe and go on the king's horse and go through the king's city, being pronounced as someone that the king delights to honour. It's a show of how important you are to the king. And it's also a demonstration of intimacy. This person gets to wear my clothes. Now, does this sound like anything to you, those of you Christians who've been around a while? Ordinary sequence of events. There was this person who had an ordinary, very ordinary, common kind of birth. His parents couldn't even get a room in a motel. He had to be born in a stable. He lived a pretty ordinary life as a skilled, he's a joiner, skilled uh, uh, tradesman. He taught, had a teaching ministry for three years. Everybody got excited he was going to be the Messiah. Their hope turned to despair. His life was taken to the cross and it turned to death. But on the third day, Jesus Christ arose and he lives a new life now forever. And now he says, if you're his people, you get to wear the king's robe. The association that Mordecai enjoyed in some silly way with the Persian king. Jesus Christ says, if you're my person, my child, my son, my daughter, you get to wear my robe. All my goodness and deeds and all my power is is vested onto you. And the robe suggests intimacy. That you're one with him, that you're close to him, that you're precious to him. And Jesus Christ says, if you're my son, my daughter, my child, then you're very, very precious to me. I died for you. And that birth, death and resurrection was done for you. So God is in control. He's in control of uh, kings, power, tiny details. And he works everything out to fulfil his purpose, to give life to his people. Let's praise him in prayer, shall we? Gracious Lord, you are beautiful beyond description. uh, Too marvellous for words. You're too lofty for us to comprehend and your ways are past our finding out. But we thank you now. We give you our praise that now we've discovered that you are, in, you are the all-powerful God. Now that we've discovered that you're in control, we also know that you are so good and that you love us. And we praise you for that. And we ask for the strength and the grace to live our lives this week in the light of that big truth. Amen.